Welcome to Bunny Hugs and Mental Health, the podcast that deals with all things mental health. We talk to professionals, survivors, and loved ones about their sometimes informative, sometimes uplifting, and sometimes tragic stories. I'm your host of the show, Todd Runnebaum, advocate, recovering addict, experienced sufferer of depression and anxiety, and author of the children's book, Sometimes Daddy Cries. Hello, I'm Todd Rennebaum, and you are listening to Bunny Hugs and Mental Health on the Saskatchewan Podcast Network. And this week, I got a, a kind of a different one. Uh, it's, it still involves mental health, but it involves mental health with frontline workers in our prison system here in the province and uh, with those that are incarcerated. Uh, I am speaking to Kaylee LaFontaine. She's the executive director at the uh, Elizabeth Fry Society of Saskatchewan. And one of their things is um, the abolishment of prisons. Uh, now, the, the strange thing about her being the executive director of something like this is she's actually a former corrections officer. So she's been there. She's she's frontline work, and she's uh, she sees things differently now. And she'd like to help uh, those incarcerated and those that work uh, in in prisons. But before I play that, I would just like to give a big thank you to Annabelle at Penny University Bookstore. She's at 3104 13th Avenue, phone number 639-571-2186. You can go on their website, pennyu.ca, and shop for books there. Uh, or, like I said, you can go to her address there on 13th Avenue and, and shop for books. Uh, and thank you, Annabelle, for another a week of sponsorship and one more thing i like to give a shout out to my friend heather bellog for for sharing and saying some nice things about the uh the podcast on on facebook and and wherever else she talked about it uh i really do appreciate everyone that gives really nice comments uh has questions or whatever um it's nice to hear from you uh you can follow me on uh, facebook at uh, bunny hugs and mental health and on Instagram, uh, and it's Daddy Cries Book. And yeah, if, if you like the podcast and you're listening to it on Apple, you can leave a review or uh, um, a rating. That's what it's called. Okay, now, without further ado, I'd like to present to you Kaylee LaFontaine. I am the new executive director of the Elizabeth Fry Society of Saskatchewan. And what exactly is that? We are a charity nonprofit organization that is women-led uh, and women-centered. Um, our focus is on advocacy and support for uh, women, girls, and LGBTQ2 Spirit Plus individuals uh, who are in conflict with the law. So what, what made you want to uh, be part of that? let alone the director. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's it's been a bit of a journey, um, definitely. So I actually come from a background of working as a frontline correctional uh, officer. So I started my career in corrections um, at the age of 21, and I had given university a shot, and it wasn't for me, and... Um, I had 
moved back home. So I'm currently living in Saskatoon, um, but I was raised and I'm from uh, the Paw, Manitoba. I'm not mm. sure if you're familiar. Uh, I've heard of it. <laughs> it's 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 always a pause when you ask somebody if they know where it is because it's a very unique community. It has a bad rep, that's for sure. Is that right? <laughs> it does. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like if you were to ask somebody in the, probably the '70s or '80s, it was a really tough community. Whether you were visiting visiting it or living in it. Um, it's yeah it's always kind of been uh, a rough little town yeah so i had moved I moved to saskatoon and um tried university and then that didn't work out so i moved back home and i got into corrections and i actually come from a line of correctional officers uh, my my stepdad and my biological dad actually worked together back in the 80s and like the list goes on, like my grandfather, my uncle, my aunts, like every everybody that was sort of in my life. I grew up around correctional officers and hmm. um, like the culture of that. And I decided to give it a shot. Um, I started started the training in 2008, uh, April 2008. It was like the first thing in my first time in my life I had like really excelled at anything. I had gotten 90s and I was like valedictorian of the graduating class that we had. And yeah, it was it was quite interesting. So yeah, like that's been my primary career. I've worked uh, in many institutions. I've worked in four separate institutions as well as a halfway house, just formerly known as the CTRs, but it's called community or it was called community training residence. They're now considered reintegration units. So I worked at the women's reintegration unit uh, for the provincial government. So it's a low custody housing arrangement so that uh, women can reintegrate back into the community after incarceration. Hmm. So in your hometown, what is it, the PAW? Is there a jail there? Is that why you had so much family working in corrections? Yeah, so in Manitoba, as far as like correctional facilities and, and the way that the population is 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 heavily, we're heavily populated throughout the South. So major cities like Brandon and Winnipeg, that's where you would find most of the correctional centers. Right. Um, but in Manitoba, they had one small one that was like kind of a low custody in Dauphin, Manitoba. And then the most northern institution was this small little jail in the paw that had women men and youth all under the same roof and hmm. th that's very uncommon like we don't have anything like that here it was i mean they were all in separate units at that point i think it was sometime in the 80s they stopped letting the men and women have outside recreation together <laughs> for obvious reasons <laughs> Oh, recreation, is that what you call it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, is that the only place in Manitoba that you worked in? Or like once you yeah. moved to? Yeah, so I worked there for three years. Typically at that time, so about 2011, or what I was seeing in provincial corrections um, when I was applying is there was pretty much only people with post-secondary degrees getting hired on frontline. It was very rare for them to hire somebody without a degree. But because I had worked in a center before, 
and I had my three years of experience, I was able to get employment at the Saskatoon Correctional Center. Hmm. Uh, so that was the reason I moved back to Saskatoon was to work there. And so you may be familiar, but that's one of our larger men's institutions in Saskatchewan. I actually didn't know that. I don't know much about jail at all. (laughs) (laughs) I think you'll find through our conversation that it heavily correlates with mental health with a lot, like there's a lot of mental health struggles uh, that I've seen over the years through people who are incarcerated and through people who work as frontline staff in correctional facilities. And yeah, so when I had heard your podcast, I just, that was like a light bulb that sort of came off for me where it was like, this is something that people need to talk about. And I don't hear anybody really talking about it. No, you don't. And I I appreciate you reaching out because it's something I never thought about, you know, as a subject for, for an episode. But as soon as you uh, left a message and I read it, I was like, damn, that's a, that's a great idea. So Plus, you said some very nice comments to me about the podcast, which I really appreciate. So, really, that's the only reason why we're on. You're on here tonight. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so, yeah, explain a little more about the um, the mental health um, aspect. Uh, maybe start with the staff. Yeah, and and I mean, like, this is. I mean, this is strongly tied to the work that I'm doing now, but I say as a disclaimer, like I am on the podcast today, really representing myself as a person. Uh, so my opinions are, are I'm not, not, I don't want to lead on my opinions. I just, I sort of want to highlight some of the, the things that I've experienced over the years. So my personal experiences, and I understand right. that those experiences are different, you know, and they vary with other people, but Right. Um, yeah, I staff, there's a culture that comes with being a correctional officer. It's like being part of a club that you don't have people who, who don't do that work. Like people who don't do that work don't quite understand sort of the culture that comes along with it. Right. You know, there's a sense of family because you're you're doing a really tough job. And you're going through tough situations with those people. And there's bond that is really strong throughout people who work in that line of work. And I think we see that, right? Very similarly with people who work in policing or military and those kinds of things. Yeah, I think there's a, a correlation there for sure. Right. And, and you know, I, I say that some of the people I love more than ever in my life, you know, have been people who I've met through working on the front lines in corrections. I think that there is something to be said about uh, the amount of people who end up, you know, ending their careers due to medical issues or mental health leaves. And there's a whole layer that a lot of the public doesn't realize. Yeah. Well, I actually had a friend that worked at the PA Pen for a little bit, and I think he trained longer than he actually worked there for. Like, it didn't take him long before he was like, yeah, this is not good for me. Yeah, yeah, it's, I don't think it's good for anybody, but people do it, and I can't blame them for doing it. I stayed in that job for, you know, like I said, almost just under 12 years. There's something that keeps you there, like it's, 
a good job and when you're training there's an emphasis that the government and this I've found in my experiences whether I'm speaking with people in federal institutions or from Manitoba or from Saskatchewan you know there's a real sense of of the government believing that they're helping people who are incarcerated and I believe that there are people who are helping people, but I don't believe the system is helping anybody. Right. I don't believe that the way that our system is designed, that it's serving anyone who is in need of help. And anyone who's criminalized is in need of help. Right. You know, whether they're willing to receive that help or not, whether they've made those decisions for those crimes, whether it was an accident or whatever the circumstances are, those people need help. How are we providing it to them? And what is, I think what's really important is like, what's the lens that they're seeing the world in by the way that they are treated because of their actions? Right. I talked to uh, police chief Evan Bray a while ago. And we were talking about just how many people are in jail because of uh, addictions. Uh, I mean, there's um, spousal abuse, there's drinking and driving, there's, you know, trafficking and there's uh, burglaries and, you know, there's on and on and on because of addictions. And I mean, if you're asking me, I've worked in addictions, I'm in recovery. I mean, those people are sick. They need help, like you said. And I bet you, I mean, I've like I said, I don't work in jails or anything, but you, you think of crimes like that, you know, that's probably 80% of the people in jail are because of crimes like that. So if you can help those people with addictions, just, you know, just that alone, you could bring down the crime rate and bring down, you know, ha- having all those people in cages. Absolutely. You know, when the government announced that they were going to be putting this 50 plus million dollars into a new remand center in Saskatoon, Mm -hmm. when that first was released, I felt relief. And I felt relief because I know how dangerous jails are. I know that they're overcrowded. I know that there is a boiling point of environment that people are walking into and people are living in right now that, you know, isn't safe for anyone. So my first thought was there would be more room, but now I'm in a different position and I understand more and I'm constantly learning. If you would have told me three years ago that I would now be the executive director of an organization that's based on prison abolition, then I wouldn't have believed you. But the growth that I've got, like I wouldn't have, it's pure, it's like full stop. (laughs) I wouldn't have believed that, right? And I don't think I would have been able to walk out of, you know, my my position as a frontline CO and walk into this job, like that wouldn't happen. Yeah. Um, And it's really been the journey that I've been on in the last three years. Like I've had four job interviews in three years and (laughs) I'm really thankful because I've gotten all of those jobs. It's been a journey. Like it's, it's been 
a lot to get here. So, so with staffing, because we're kind of on the staff part of it, have you seen like, I know you're not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but have you seen like PTSD in uh, some frontline workers? And do you think you, or have you been diagnosed with anything like that? Yeah, that's such a tough question. It's so tough to answer because I told, I actually smudged before, before our chat, because I really needed to make sure that I had the courage to, to talk about this because it's really, really tough. Hmm. I say with like, certainty there is so many people that are affected by trauma um and i can't diagnose myself and i can't diagnose anyone but i have found through my journey of healing over the last few years sort of triggers in myself where i've really seen that trauma lives there and that that's a a result of of the work that i did for so long hmm. When you're working in that kind of environment, you're always on guard, right? You're always heightened. Mm-hmm. You're constantly waiting for the for the shoe to drop, for the code to be called for next time that you have to save somebody's life or break up a fight or attend a unit that's under gang wars or a riot or all of these things that, you know, people don't realize is going on in right. this it's like it's like a it's like a sub world like and, and when you are a part of it then you know it exists but then you go into the real world and you're like people are talking about just really mundane things and you're like but this is what happened to me yesterday or this is what i saw or yeah you know and and even more importantly and i mean we will we will get to this topic as well, but more importantly, like what people go through when they're incarcerated. Uh, I, I mean, I don't want to trigger you and I'm not going to ask you the most awful thing you ever saw or whatever, you know, if you want to talk about that stuff, that's great. But, um, I can imagine, well, even in working in addictions in a treatment center, I mean, there's no big fights or anything, but you know, drama can happen. So I can imagine working in a prison because in the treatment center it was like for four or five days it's really quiet everyone's behaving and it's like like you said you're waiting for the shoe to drop like everyone's like it's a little too quiet yeah what's yeah. going on it's like, <laughs> you can't even enjoy the downtime <laughs> yeah and then the full moon comes out yeah <laughs> i i was talking about something as far as um there was somebody that i've known through my career who was recently uh, who recently passed and I was sort of discussing the details out loud to my partner as we were driving and it was like really graphic and I didn't really realize what I was doing mm. um, and then he's like I'm not desensitized like you are <laughs> like, oh, that is a very fair point that I'm talking about this you know like so it's like uh. I do that sometimes and I kind of forget about the shock factor of it yeah was the person you're talking about like a staff member or or like a client in the a, yeah a client in the the community so so she was somebody that i knew through working um in the front line but she has utilized our services hmm. at with our organization in the past as well hmm. but it was it, the the recent hit and run uh, that's been in the news as far as saskatoon um she was a young woman who been hit by a car and she was pregnant and 
it actually just happened a few blocks from our house. So that's why I was talking about it and just really sad that that happened because I, I, I can't speak for her and I haven't seen her in years, but it, it sounded like, you know, like this was her first child and this really could have been a turning point for her. So hmm. that's really sad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just found out recently I'm not going, but like I worked at Pine Lodge and I, we've been shut down because of a fire, COVID and all this crap. Uh, but I've kind of had to move on cause I was laid off. So I've got a different job. So I'm not working in addictions anymore, but, uh, sitting back and thinking about my last couple of years working there, it, like I live in a small town and other people talk about their jobs and stuff. And it's like, yeah, people I work with, uh, a lot of them are, you know, they're found frozen in the snow or murdered or, uh, you know, overdosed. It is a weird job. Like yeah, the job working in, you know, in corrections, that's, yeah, it's not something. It's weird. Yeah, it is weird. It's weird. My favorite, my favorite thing. And this is, I can, this has happened to me countless, countless, countless times where somebody says, oh, like, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I work in corrections. And I'm like, hmm, so like admin or <laughs> people have been asking me if I was a janitor before. I'm like, I no, like I work on the, like yeah, I wear a uniform. I was like in the front lines. <laughs> <laughs> You get attached to people that are, you know, most vulnerable pe people in our society, people that, you know, other people look at and frown upon them and you get attached to these people. And so it, it's, it's, it's just weird. It's all just very weird. I mean, it's rewarding uh, absolutely. addictions anyway, I can't say for you. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know what, that's exactly what's, that's exactly why I'm in the position that I'm in now today. Um, because I went from the Paw Correctional Center to Saskatoon. I then went in 2014 to Pine Grove Correctional Center. Mm. I really, really loved working with the women. Yeah. The, the women, it's completely different. They have a whole different set of needs. They have a whole different set of barriers. It's, in my opinion, it's almost a bit more hostile and dangerous sometimes with the women yeah. than it is with the men working the front lines of men's corrections there's like a code and most of the time men don't attack attack female guards but like it's all fair game when you're working with women right like it's <laughs> i say that with a laugh because i know that it just sounds funny but it's that there's truth to it right yeah yeah we've had a lot of clients come from pine grove yeah and i and i've had many people you know that i've cared about go to pine lodge as well so i mean there's probably some folks we know we both know but we don't even realize <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so we've kind of discussed what it's like being on the staff side of it and, and the mental health uh so what's i mean you, you've never been incarcerated i don't think but but you've seen what it's like to be incarcerated. Um, maybe talk a little bit about uh, the mental health of, you know, some of the, the people incarcerated. It's hard to summarize um, what I've seen as far as the state that I've seen people in. It's a def different perspective now that I'm on the other side of it. I think that there's so much to that job that I understand why they 
believe it's necessary and I believed it for a very long time. Um, you know, as simple as a strip search. Mm-hmm. When you're first incarcerated and you first go in, you know, whether you've been there before, whether it's your first time in jail, like whether it doesn't bother you or whether you're crying uncontrollably and can't function, you you have to do a strip search. So a CO would request your clothing and one by one, then you have to do all of the motions in order to make sure that that person, you know, sees that you don't have anything on you. Hmm. And I've, I mean, I've done probably hundreds of those. Mm-hmm. It's hard because I'm, I'm in a place where I now I look back on things like that and I really try to put myself in the shoes of that person and the vulnerability and, you know, being scared and like sort of having to shut that off. And you don't know who is a victim of assault or sexual assault or, or anything that they've been dealt in their life. And, you know, I've seen some people who've really, really struggled with that. And it's necessary, right? They they, they deem that it's necessary to happen. But right. it's really difficult to do. And it's probably a hundred times more difficult to have done. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's awful and it's, it would be a very uh, violating feeling. But at the same time, I mean, they could be bringing in dangerous things. So I guess ultimately it's for the safety of everyone, but it's also sounds awful. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it is awful. And like. And that's just day one. Yeah. That's, that's like, that's just your first couple minutes in the door. Right. Hmm. Yeah. And so like some, some other things too is like solitary confinement, you know, you know, like being a part of that system and saying like, okay, that person is a danger to us. They're a danger to themselves. They have to be confined. That all used to make sense to me. And it makes me sad now, Hmm. you know? And I say that knowing that people I love and care about could hear this and they can say like, you know, like, you know how hard it is. And yes, I do. I, I do know how hard it is. Um, but I don't think that means that it's right. And now that I've been in the community and now that I've seen other ways that you can help people grow, like that's why I'm doing what I'm doing, because I really want to be able to intervene in people's lives before they have to even be incarcerated. You know, I want us, I want us to be in a community that has a place for somebody to go directly when they're at their breaking point so that they can heal and they can transform and then they can take care of the, the trauma that they're holding on to so that they don't harm themselves or others. Right. And really expand their trauma by going to prison and dealing with all the whatever happens in there. That's what I now know about prison abolition. You know, like, let's abolish prisons and that's not going to happen tomorrow. That's probably not going to happen in a hundred years, but how do we get there? You know, we build more homes and we build more communities that have space for the people who feel like they don't have space. 
and not just the people that don't feel like they have this the places that there are not space for those people right like and i've experienced you know i've witnessed that not experienced it i've witnessed that through my career as well where somebody is trying to do their absolute best to get ahead and change their life around and they can't get a place to live because they don't have landlord references and they're they just got out of jail and you know the barriers of you can't call a landlord up and say hey i'm just getting out of jail on thursday can i come and rent your place like yeah. no you know yeah. you can't um so i guess what i haven't shared is that when i went um so i went to the reintegration unit and that was that was like transformative for me um i was out of uniform i was still a co but i was just working in my normal clothes and it was a house with uh, 14 residents and is a game changer. We were doing things with them that really focused on their healing and and focused on how to get them to a place where they're able to be self-sufficient. And it was just like, I was in love. I was, I was in love with being able to help them in this way, was in love with the people that I was connecting with. Like one of the uh, individuals who's on my, like the first person kind of on my caseload, like she's somebody I'm still cheering on and you know I'm so proud of her and and I still have her in my life and like I remember the you know the first time I added somebody who'd been incarcerated on Facebook like that's not something that you're you're you can do as a CO right but as soon as I had transitioned from that job I was able to you know connect with her again with a few with a few individuals who mean a lot to me and and I love them I love them so much and they're women and they're you know like they're mothers and they're just individuals who like had a really rough go and mm. they just want what's best in life things are really hard right mm -hmm. and we shouldn't fault them on that I couldn't imagine being like a father, let alone a mother with young children and being incarcerated like that alone must be, you know, traumatizing. Yeah. And, and you're looking at like, I don't have the stats, Canada stats in front of me. Yeah. Um, but I, like, I can safely say like 60 to 80% of, you know, women who are incarcerated nationally and provincially are mothers mm -hmm. you know and that is you know that's affecting that generational trauma as well that's right yeah so what are some other uh solutions you think like you you, you, you said housing um well i'm thinking more like for gangs because i know a lot of gang violence and stuff like well gangs are i mean gangs are that's really interesting. So gangs I've seen, um, I've never been in a gang. Uh, I mean, I've been propositioned to join one more than once. <laughs> While you were a CEO? Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess, yeah, I'm sure they have. I always said no. I Like I've always really like in my job, I've always been myself. So I've always kind of just been like funny and joking around and yeah. There's, yeah. you know, like been a couple of times where someone's like, you know, like, I really think you'd, you'd be good at this. I'm like, no, I think I'm good at this. So it's okay. <laughs> well, that's nice. That, that, that must be flattering. So flattering. Yeah. <laughs> you like Which I'm so sure, like, if game? I was, 
if honestly, like if I was, you know, born back in the day, like I probably could have ran a brothel. Like that's really who I, what my personality is. I don't think anybody <laughs> was, would dispute that. Um. <laughs> so how do you solve some of the gang stuff? So that they don't have to go to jail. Like as someone who's on the, you know, the director of uh, a, a foundation, uh, what are you, a foundation, a group? I don't know. <laughs> to abolish prison. You're like, who are you again? Why are we talking? <laughs> it's Friday. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, we don't have a strong focus right now on gangs, um, but Straight Up, which is an organization Mm -hmm. um is is really strongly rooted in that and i think their like their format is like they have people who have transitioned out of that lifestyle and then it's very peer-centered and i think that's really important i think that's right. really important in my line of work with our organization as well to have those peers for for them to see that representation of people who've been in there in their shoes, so to speak. Right. Uh, some former gang members I've talked to uh, were indigenous and they, what really helped them heal was really embracing their culture and like starting to do a lot more of their traditional um, things, talking to elders, doing sweats and like really embracing the culture that they kind you know, they got away from it a bit being in the gangs and stuff. And they found that really healing and, helpful when you know transitioning out of gangs absolutely culture and so i'm i'm have indigenous heritage i'm on a journey right now so i'm not really comfortable saying metis i've always said metis but i really want to uh, explore my genealogy before i say that because i don't really know if i have those red river ties hmm. um but my my father was um, half indigenous, so he he didn't have a connection with his uh, uh, father. So I don't really know that side. I just know that he was from uh, sort of the Red Deer area. But my father would have been status if if he had had that connection with his dad. And my mother is status, so she, her, and her mother both have their uh, treaty cards, and they are members of Opaskwet Cree Nation, which. Uh, sits right next to the paw. Hmm. Uh, but do you know what treaty land that is? Uh, that's treaty five. Hmm. I'm on treaty four. Yeah, I am on. I was here first. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Beat you by one. I'm just sorry. I, I can't go off again. <laughs> no, that's okay. I'm just like, is it treaty five? I'm like very certain that it is. And anyway, so indigenous culture. So what I was going to say, we're tying that in. Um, yeah, like I've, I don't have a lot of strong cultural ties or I hadn't until this point in my life. Um, and But I saw a lot of culture uh, through my career. And I've seen that just really be transformative for people um, time and time again. And I mean, it's been transformative for myself as I connect more and more to it. Hmm. Yeah. When you, when you don't know that part of you, I think as you connect and things start to make sense and, you know, like indigenous culture is so beautiful and, it, and mm -hmm. it's, there's so many variants to it and 
so much of that was lost, but I'm just like, I love seeing people honoring their cultures and learning more and, and that it's becoming more mainstream to, to see that is just like, I think we're in a really beautiful time. Um, Cause that wasn't the case when I was growing up, uh, right. especially like in the community that I grew up with. Um, racism was strong and alive and I'll name it. Um, like uh, my dad lived on the reserve and my mom lived in the pond. Like I remember getting the shit kicked out of me because I was like too white when I'd go visit my dad on the reserve mm-hmm. and you know, like there was culture there. It was right in front of me. There was powwows constantly and, and ceremony. And, and I was never invited to be a part of that. And I never thought I would, I never thought it was my place, but like it, it was my place. And I'm just learning that now. And I see that a lot with some of my peers that are kind of my age group and are now looking into their culture. Do you mind me asking how old you are? I had to think about that. <laughs> I'm 35. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, how old am I? <laughs> well, I'm 43 and I remember the residential school a couple towns down was still running like it was still fully operational. And so it, it hasn't been that long that, you know, people are encouraged to embrace their indigenous culture. It was still, you know, they were trying to take it away still when I was a kid and I'm not that old. Yeah. And I mean, I, both sides of my family were really affected by that generational trauma and that disconnection with their culture. Mm-hmm. You know, well, that's another episode I want to do. Actually, is the mental health. I was just going to say that is a whole other episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's what I find with these episodes is like you kind of start off on one theme, and it's like, man, you, you can just you come up with ten other themes within the one episode. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so on Indigenous uh, culture and incarceration, like something that's really wonderful, and I, I actually cannot wait to go down and connect with them, but there's healing lodges mm-hmm. within the federal system. So in Saskatchewan, we have the Okamau Ochi Healing Lodge, which is a women's lodge federally. I used to hear about sentencing circles. I don't hear that as much. I You know, I'm I'm not strongly... Like, I'm not as familiar with the federal system as I am with the uh, provincial, but I haven't heard of sentencing circles for a long time either. Hmm. Um, that's where, like, the elders, right, come. Yeah, instead of, like, a judge. Yeah, instead of, yeah. I mean, that's a brilliant idea. Like I said, like, anyone I've ever met that embraces their culture really do heal and, you know, become a member of the community again. And so why not? encourage yeah. the healing lodges, sentencing circles and things. I mean, that's the best way to go from a criminal to really getting into your culture. Mm-hmm. Anyway, not everyone thinks like me though. <laughs> well, we just need to start changing people's minds. And I think that's what is important, right? And that's why we're talking about it. The more we talk about it, the, the more it's going to resonate with people. So here's something. Um, I mean, if you watch any TV show, you, well, I mean, we kind of talked about uh, being incarcerated and the mental health issues and what could cause mental health issues. I mean, 
I mean, I don't know much about prison, but you know, I've seen enough TV that I, <laughs> I don't need to, we don't have to nitpick every trauma in prison to, to get it. But the last year must've been hell with COVID and being staffed and being incarcerated and just that whole fear and the stress and the masks and the temperature taking, like all that crap is just must've been horrible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, I can imagine it. And that's why it scares me because it just, it cannot, it cannot be easy. Currently right now we have an outbreak of COVID in the women's correctional facility. There's, nine i hate the word inmates um, yeah that's, that's my own yeah i i use clients now too i mean there are nine individuals who are uh, in, individuals who are incarcerated that are covid positive at this time and then there are seven staff currently at pine grove correctional center hmm. i know saskatoon had a bad outbreak this winter or fall or whatever it was and and so has Regina. Like Regina had a really bad one just recently. Yeah, my cousin works there, and he he ended up getting uh, COVID. So yeah, there's all that stress on top of just the nightmare stress the job already has. Yeah, and like so, what that looks like too, as far as being incarcerated. So when you're when you come into custody, like there you're tested, but you're also quarantined for 14 days, and on top of that. If you, if like because of um, the lack of room, they move somebody into your room, then you have to continue to quarantine until their 14 days is up. Oh my God. I mean, I want to advocate for that to not happen, but I also don't know like how does that not happen if they have to quarantine them? Like, where do you put people? Yeah. It's so hard, right? Well, there's a lot of police chiefs trying to uh, legalize you know, small quantities of drugs. So <laughs> that would definitely, you know, make some space. Well, and it's the, the, the advocacy needs to be towards the court system. We have to look at the courts. They're making the decisions that, that these, that a lot of people have to be remanded. Like that's a whole other thing is that we have, so I'll use uh, Pine Grove, um, as an example, because that's who our organization works with the most. But mm -hmm. um, out of a hundred and approximately 190 individuals, like 60 of those people are sentenced. So the rest of them are just oh, awaiting trial and um, sentencing. That's a lot of people. Like that's a lot of moms in our in our province that are just sitting in what? in jail cells right now. Yeah. I had no idea. Oh, I, remand numbers across the boards is, yeah. Again, I and I, I see why you wouldn't have an idea because I don't think the general public really understands that. They're just like, yeah, people are in jail and, you know, I'm sure they belong there. But that's not always the case. And, like, I have seen an increase and increase and increase in the remand population in centers and it's not good for anybody uh, because there's a lack of programming when it comes to being remanded. Um, because you're not sentenced, they can't... They can't offer you services? They, <laughs> in a nutshell. In a nutshell, God, honestly. Because they can't 
calculate like your certain risk factors and I'm doing a bad job of quoting it and I should because it's my job. <laughs> I know what you're saying, but yeah, there's um, there's a, a huge lack of remand uh, programming. Um, so there's just people who are sitting in, in jails and they're not getting any help. Um, so what's the longest you can sit in remand or what's the longest you've heard of someone sitting like years? <sighs> I saw a man sit in remand for five years before he was sentenced for, I believe, manslaughter. What? Five years? Five years. And they weren't even sentenced yet? No. And that's, yeah. And so, like, when you're remanded, you're always you're always in the provincial system, right? Like, federal's only sentenced. Um, oh. So, so... I'm not sure if you know this, but like, so when you're sentenced, if you get two years plus a day, then you go to a federal institution. If you get two years minus a day, then you stay within your province and you do your provincial incarceration. Man, like the stress of that alone, let alone all the stuff that happens in jail plus COVID. Yeah. My yeah. God. And, and before, before COVID, you'd have family visiting, like our organization would be in Pine Grove every two weeks. So every Friday, every second Friday, we would be in there and we'd be walking from, and I I haven't obviously gotten to do this yet because I started just recently. Um, I've been with the organization since October, um, but in my new job since April. But um, eFry for a very long time has been, eFry is, sorry, short for Elizabeth Fry, has been doing institutional visits provincially like, before it was weekly and then it was bi-weekly for years and years. So we would go and we'd actually sit and connect and then that would really be able to enhance the ability for us to help individuals who are there and for them to really feel like, you know, they weren't alone in that process, but that hasn't been the case for the last 14 months. Um, And I do have a, you know, I do have a good sort of working relationship with the with the director, and you know, she does want us to go back to those visits, but there, it's going to be probably still a while before the ministry allows us to return. Right. How often do you think? <laughs> I think I know the answer, but how often do you think the ministry? Because, I mean, it's always a different minister. Like, every couple of years there's a cabinet shuffle and stuff. But how often do you think that a minister makes educated decisions by uh, consulting with frontline workers? (laughs) (laughs) In my position now, I feel even strong. Like, yeah, I... I would absolutely love if that was the case. I don't think it happens very often, if at all. Um, I knew that was the answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just recently said this to somebody too. Like, I am such an, I'm in a weird place, right? Like, because I'm like now in this whole world where I'm talking to educators and people about prison rights and the things that are happening in prisons and in jails and all of this stuff. But there's not really anyone in this sphere that has worked on the front lines that I'm really like seeing or connecting. There's bits and pieces here and there, but there's, there's not a lot of crossover. So like this, 
this thing that I'm doing is really unique and I don't know that it's, you know, it's happened a whole lot where somebody's worked that long on the front lines and now are in the position that I'm in, but. It makes sense though. Like who knows better what it's like day to day in a place like that than someone like you. And yeah, if you think it should be abolished, then. <laughs> well, know. and, and I think we, we keep working on it until we get there. Right. And I'm hoping as I like have just started in this role, I'm hoping as I reach out to ministers, because I will be reaching out to them, that we're, we're going to be able to have those conversations. Um, I've been lucky in, in a lot of circumstances so far. Again, it's been five weeks, but I've had a lot of people show their support for, for me being in this position, which also feels very weird. And I have a lot of imposter syndrome a lot of the time because mm-hmm. I never, ever imagined that there was a place, there was a, there was a seat for me at this table. Um, and that's what really held me back from kind of meshing those two worlds. So yeah, like I don't think the I don't think that the governments are uh, really listening and speaking directly to the people who are on the front lines or the people who are incarcerated. Um, I think those voices are really important. Yeah. So that's my job, right? That's my job is I have to elevate those voices and and make sure that those stories and opinions are heard. So when you say you're getting a lot of good feedback and stuff about the position you're in now, is that like? from politicians or from? Yeah, well, just as I connect more and more with people, like, so I'm connecting now with a lot of um, either directors or wardens through mm. corrections. Gotcha. Um, I'm, I'm connecting with community partners and leaders of organizations. And um, I've had, just before I started this, so just before I started Um, as executive director, I wrote a little letter to social services uh, because they pissed me off (laughs) (laughs) over a client. I posted it on our Facebook page, on our organization's Facebook page. And I was really mad because I had a client who um, was in like really, really desperate need of housing. So that's what I, okay, so I keep almost mentioning this and then I don't, but after the halfway house that I worked at, I then worked at social services for 10 months. So that was my last stop in the government. I worked at income assistance, social services, and that was another light bulb that really showed me sort of the disconnection between those two ministries and how it's really imperative for those two ministries to work together in Mm -hmm. order for the people who are marginalized and utilizing their I don't want to say services as far as incarceration, but services as far as income assistance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the people who are going in and out of those systems, like there is not a lot of chatter back and forth. And I think that's that's a conversation I really want to have. Um, but when I did write this letter, I had um, the Minister of Social Services had reached out to me and, and things happened really quickly because I had written that letter. So... Um, yeah and that reminds me i need to i need to uh write her office a letter (laughs) again (laughs) so that i could possibly have a conversation uh that doesn't happen too often yeah it feels really weird most of the time (laughs) (laughs) well i uh 
created a oh, what the hell you call it a petition to create a minister of agri- or not agriculture <laughs> a petition to create a minister of mental health and uh, addiction and they just created one not too long ago here and I was like it, it is it is weird it's like did I have a part in that that that's amazing I was just gonna say like I, did they just do that and I, I guess I didn't even realize that they didn't do that before so that's amazing well the problem is he's uh, I don't want to get too political but I know we have to we have to be nice right that's the problem yeah I mean there's a guy there and he's got that title I don't know how much they're how, how long of a leash they're giving him but you know what I mean? Well, Todd, I worked for the government for a long time, so you need to say no more. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it might just be a PR thing. I don't know. I don't know. But I, I hope they prove me wrong. They haven't yet, but I hope they do soon. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so, too. I really do. And I, <laughs> I actually believe he has a good heart and he wants to do the right thing. It's just, you know, politics and, you know. Maybe you should run for MLA. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, mental health issues. Yeah, that's <laughs> exactly. You know what? In five years, maybe I will. <laughs> I've considered it, but. Who, who knows what will happen? Honestly, being in the position that I'm in now, like imagine that I, I didn't allow myself for a very long time to dream outside of my own confinement. <laughs> in my career if that makes sense um yeah I, I really i i didn't have a formal education i didn't believe i could do anything other than that i thought hey i'm you know i'm pretty nice to people and i'm okay at this job but then i woke up one day and i was like shit my body really hurts and i'm like hitting a breaking point and if i don't leave right away like i'm probably <laughs> in trouble <laughs> that's the thing too like i i will be honest like i've just struggled really i've struggled a lot mentally and physically um over the course of the the, probably the last five years of this journey and it was for me a life or death decision like I, Mm -hmm. i needed to get out i was at one point had like thought about applying to dark side donuts to just like go work and make donuts. Like, I'm like, how can I get out of this? Like, how can I pay my bills Mm -hmm. so that I don't have to be reliant on this job that is killing me? Well, there's nothing, there's no worse feeling than feeling stuck. Yeah. Is there anything uh, you wanted to add before you leave? Um, If you are someone or you know somebody who is either in front of the courts or they're incarcerated or working off fines, anything like that, anything to do with the justice system, then please reach out to to myself and or our office. We have um, some really, really amazing women that work in our office. I'm really lucky. Thank you, Kaylee, so much for that. Uh, I, I learned quite a bit about uh, prison and prison system and the mental health uh, challenges, not just from staff, and but also those uh, incarcerated. So I really, really appreciate your time, and I, I, I just appreciate um, being educated a little bit. Now, next week, uh, it's, uh, it's another great episode, another interesting one, another, well, it's a pretty heavy one. 
I'm speaking to Erin Goodpipe. She is uh, an Indigenous woman from Saskatchewan, now living in Vancouver, and we're going to talk about intergenerational trauma, and and not just um, amongst um, the whole Indigenous communities, but also within her own family. And uh, yeah, some of the mental health challenges that um, people struggle with, uh, Indigenous people struggle with because of the intergenerational traumas. So it's a heavy subject, uh, but she's such a lovely lady and she's so willing to talk about it and share that it's it's really amazing. In fact, I think I'm going to make it a two-parter. We talked for quite a while uh, and, you know, I'd, I'd, instead of a really long episode, I think I'd like to make, you know, two smaller ones. So stay tuned for that. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe, rate, and review however you are listening to this podcast. It only takes a moment, and it really helps the show out with getting noticed. This episode has been sponsored by Penny University Bookstore, 3104 13th Avenue. Call 639-571-2186 and check out their online bookstore at pennyu.ca. The Saskatchewan Podcast Network is supported by Conexus. Wellness, however you define it, is achievable. You don't even need to figure it all out by yourself. Talk to Conexus. They'll give you guidance, motivation, and the push you need to reach your goals. They've got you. They're your financial partner and they know you can achieve your very best, your financial best. Prove them right. Start right at Conexus Credit Union. The Saskatchewan Podcast Network is also sponsored by Direct West. Are you a business owner looking for new avenues to promote your business? Direct West digital billboards are a great opportunity to highlight a new product, new promotion, or anything else you'd like your customers to know about. You can get local expert marketing help for your business at directwest.com. If you are having a mental health crisis, please call the Canadian Crisis Number at 1-833-456-4566. In Saskatchewan, the mobile crisis team in Prince Albert is 306 306- Seven six four one zero one one. In Regina, it's three zero six five two five five three three three, and in Saskatoon, it's three zero six nine three three six two zero zero. Don't forget to check out my children's book. Sometimes Daddy cries. Sometimes Daddy cries is told through the eyes of a boy whose father suffers from depression. He sees his dad get sad, rest, and even go to the hospital, all while comparing his father's depression to a physical ailment. Available on Amazon.ca. I'll see you next time. This is Todd Redebaum saying, make your beds and take your meds. Bye!